Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your host, Owen Kate, like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, less of the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Calls Return as Ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. Noel, how's it going this week? Uh, it's going pretty well, actually. Um, my person and I are going to sign a lease for a house on Saturday that we're going to rent and we're going to live together and it's very exciting. This is very exciting. I am yeah. very, very excited. And I would like, if you're willing to share them once y'all get settled in, pictures. And oh, like... we're, we're probably taking pictures like today. I'm Not today, but Saturday when we go sign the lease. Um, but if not, she'll be posting pictures because she's going to be moving in there before I am. My lease isn't up until like mid-June. Mm-hmm. Um, so she'll be moved in by the end of like this month, probably. Um, so very exciting. All of my favorite people are getting are getting houses and new places to live and everything. It's very exciting. Very yeah, for you guys. yeah. It, it's it's weird. I looked in the mirror and went, "Oh, I'm an adult-ish kind of, sort of. What? I guess. Yeah, yeah. That's how it goes. Yeah. yeah, feels weird. I don't like it. How are you? How have you been this week? Oh, well, I'm pretty good this week, all things considered, but uh, I'm going to just subvert that question because we have a tight out tonight yeah. because of said things. And also, I'm very excited. I'm going to head it over to C2E2 to see oh, friend fun. of the show, Alison Shoemaker, record, do a live episode of Podlander Drunk Cast. Uh, <gasps> fun. It's going to be super fun. I'm very excited, uh, but I got to get there before Will Call closes so I can get my ticket. Okay. Um, so friend of the show, Alison Shoemaker, is joining us this week for our conversation about Jesus Christ Superstar, which, uh, it went long. <laughs> I foolishly thought that Allison and I and Noel, but especially Allison and I, could talk about a live musical that we actually have thoughts on and that we really enjoyed for less than an hour, which was foolish. Uh, but it was a lovely conversation. It was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I think you guys will enjoy that. That's coming at the end of the show. Uh, we should mention here up at the top, first of all, because we meant to do some listener feedback last week and then forgot. We heard from some people at the website. Um, and I want to specifically mention Vincennes, who chimed in about iZombie and Dollhouse and uh, the, like the blank slate character and which show did it better and all of that. I actually, I also thought Dushku did a good job with that. On Dollhouse, uh, I I was one of the people watching, like the two or three people watching, who actually thought she did a pretty good job with Echo. I know that that was not a popular opinion. Do you? Uh, how how did you feel about that, Noel? I think it was more middle of the road. I think she gets quickly outshined by everyone else on yeah. that show. Um, and Yokaj which... and, and Dijon Lachman. <laughs> right. I, and that's the problem is that she gets outshined very quickly. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's, it's sort of a relative thing. I think her performance is fine, but everyone else's is just a lot better. And that I think it pales in comparison. And that's why she gets a lot of flack that I don't think she necessarily deserves. Yeah. No, it, they, uh, especially once they started steering the character towards her strength later in the second season. And, yeah. you know, it's certainly in the flash forwards. Um, also, Vincent's uh, talked about, because we we're talking about pacing in, in context of the flash, and he, uh, I assume he threw out um, uh, Teen Wolf, which apparently did these 10 episode arcs, but was like eight episodes of figuring out that there was a problem. And then in episode eight, they'd realize it. And then episode nine, oh, what's going to happen? Oh, no. How are we going to possibly beat the big bad? And then episode 10, they beat the big bad. Uh, just like every single season, apparently. Um, and this says he's a fan of the show in other ways, but just like I got really tiresome. I was, I was reminded very strongly because we talked about this with The Flash, but like Arrow Man. 
that's such a problem with Arrow every single season. Yeah, it is. Um, especially it feels like this season, even though they try to split it up, it's just like, oh yeah, no, we're really worried about that guy, but instead we're gonna fight each other, and also we need to get Will Holland off the show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's uh just a lot of well, I know nothing that serious is gonna happen because there's uh, episode X. Yeah. It's not episode twenty two or twenty three, so no one significant is gonna die. And uh yeah, it's just gonna go be go back and forth, back and forth, and by the end we'll actually have some resolution about something, but it's not gonna be nothing's gonna stick until we're a few episodes before the end. So yeah, yeah I, I think a lot more shows would benefit from taking the Agents of Shield pod model. Yeah, they would. It it works super well. Um, it requires a lot more planning, but it works really, really well. I think. Yeah, it didn't work as well for Veronica Mars, which is the first show I can think of trying that model. Yeah. But they needed to change something up in their third season because they couldn't yeah. just do the same predictable. See, at least they knew they needed to try a different pacing structure. So, yeah. Anyways, more shows would benefit from that. So, thank you for for running in Vincennes, listeners. Always feel free to to go head over to the org and leave comments on the different episodes. Let us know what you're thinking about these different shows and and uh, what stands out to you. We have some TV news. Uh, okay, I'm gonna get this right so I don't pull. Uh, well, a, a everything, but especially okay. a limitless here. So iZombie has not been renewed. Correct. And neither has, there's one other, uh, there's one other newish one that's still airing right now. What's the other one that has not been renewed? Uh, Valor hasn't been renewed, but their season's done. Uh-huh. Um, and though the hundred has also not been renewed the yet. The hundred, yeah. Because they haven't aired any episodes yet. And iZombie hasn't been renewed because they've aired five episodes. Yeah. So both of those are probably going to come in like sometime in May. If they're either way, they're going to come sometime in May. But everything else on the CW has been renewed, including Black Lightning, um, yes. which was, I, I, I know some people were leery about. Um, and was it announced with the same like fanfare yeah, as, as some of these other shows? But Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is coming back for a fourth and final season, which I think is a good call. Jane the Virgin has come ba- is coming back for fifth season, but not officially yet the final season. Any thoughts on that? It's going to be the final season. Gina Rodriguez is, as we discussed. She's ready. Is- She's ready to go. Um, yeah. So, and it, I mean, her schedule is going to get really tight very soon. So mm-hmm. that's not surprising. But it's also just like Supernatural season 14. Yep. They're going to keep <laughs> doing that show until they can't. And I think that's very smart. And as yeah. long as there's the viewership for it, as long yeah. as it's still making the CW money, power to you. Keep it going. You know, yeah. like it'd be great if you could write women and people of color better. Be really great if you could, <laughs> but I do Meh. not begrudge. If it's not broke, even though it's broke, don't fix it. I don't begrudge <laughs> Supernatural fans their show. Um, we also should mention uh, Kenya Barris maybe going to Netflix. That's the scuttlebutt right now. Yeah. Um. So Kenya Barris signed a really lucrative four-year deal with ABC TV Studios to develop a number of shows. The only one of which that has seen the light of day is Grownish. Um, but apparently he wants out, um, and he's only a year into this contract. Um, mm-hmm. Netflix is rumored to be offering him a sizable chunk of change. Probably not Shonda Rhimes or Ryan Murphy money, but, um, a large amount of money. Um, so he's probably trying to figure out, they're probably trying to figure a way out of his contract. Um, 
a lo- contributing factor might be in part the issues regarding that episode of Blackish that ABC just went. We're not airing this. Yeah, the kneeling um, athletes. The kneeling a- athletes episode, and yeah. so, but uh, based on that article, that's from Variety. Um, there were like other kind of creative sort of conflicts increasingly cropping up. Um, between Barris and the studio, so yeah, he he may he may want out. And given the um, different statements from ABC surrounding Roseanne and the uh-huh. fun little jabs, uh, potentially Oof. like unintentionally meant, but through the the context of Roseanne Barr and this new version of Roseanne Connor, uh, very nastily uh, contextualized jokes at Blackish and Fresh Off the Boat's expense, uh, I could see why he's ready yeah. to get out of there. So yeah. we'll see what I'd, happens. I would definitely feel that way if I was creative and or the show that is now sort of considered like the forthcoming new flagship of ABC's comedies just went, yeah, you know, those two other comedies, not so, not so, not so, not so much. And yeah. It's like, yep. Yep. Um, we should also mention uh, the earlier this week, uh, Stephen Bochco passed away. Very uh, significant force in the progression of American TV. He created Hill Street Blues, L.A. Law, NYPD Blue with David Milch. Oh, he actually he co-created Hill Street Blues. Uh, but yeah. Doogie Howser, Cop Rock, uh, oh, Murder Cop One, Rock. which pretty much like pioneered the idea of the season-long mystery and and mm-hmm. arc um in his more one of his more recent ones murder in the first like to show the span like he wrote for columbo <laughs> yeah and he was creating tv up to murder in the first just a few years ago so uh, a really significant lengthy and illustrious career in tv and uh it's one of those, it's hard to think of many people who change tv more and in more interesting ways uh narratively and structurally than than Stephen Bochco. Yeah, he really pushed um American television forward in really fascinating and interesting ways and was really dedicated to doing that. Mm-hmm. Um and you see that in almost all of his shows um regardless of what you think about them and I'm referencing Cop Rock here. <laughs> uh, yeah. But he he really tried to push things and you could tell that he was maybe sort of running out of steam with like Murder in the First in terms of like you're just redoing Murder 1, David. That's all mm-hmm. this is, or Stephen, I should say. Um, but that's all that's all you're doing with this. But it was still it still had some energy, it still had some like verve to it, but it, he he really pushed things in the eighties and nineties, um, to kind of get things to where they are. So Yeah. Um uh, I I know I would be up for a marathon of pretty much eighties. I've like never watched LA Law at all. I, I know yeah, about the elevator think- and that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen a handful of episodes of LA Law, but I've never watched it in any sustained way. I tried to do a lot of NYPD Blue when it first dropped on Hulu a while back. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I got through like a couple of seasons. Um, I know I definitely got through the Caruso year. Um, oh, David. <laughs> that was such yep. a mistake. Yep. Oh, well. <laughs> oh, well. Um, anyways, uh, RIP Stephen Bochco and, uh, you know... Go go watch some watch some of his Columbo. Watch some of his Hill Street Blues. You know, familiarize yourself with his work if you are if you are not so familiar. Uh, I mentioned C two E two a little earlier ago. We gotta also mention shout out to Klexicon twenty eighteen, which is happening right now as we record. And I already am super jealous. Did you see the speed friending that they did? Uh, I is did. It, isn't that I was a great like, concept? It's like it's, it's perfect such a good for concept. Klexicon. 
Right, no, it was super perfect for Clexicon, and I was just like, oh, speed friending is such a good idea for conventions, like, period, but especially one that like apparently- smaller. smaller, especially, yeah. was, yeah, so, I mean, it's such a terrific idea, and I love the idea of, um, friend of the show, um, Dr. Elizabeth Bridges, yelling, rotate, at unruly <laughs> con-goers to get them to meet new people, and it's just like, I love this idea so much. Oh, it's so, and it's such, it's such a specific and a, a supportive and warm and mm-hmm. big-hearted community over yeah. at Clexicon, and, uh, you know, we had such a overwhelmingly positive experience last year, so shout out to everybody who's there, and of course, Clexicon holds uh, a r- announcement for, like, last week that Stephanie Beatrice is there, too, so they were announcing new fabulous guests, like, right up until the actual con so i am sure everybody's there now is having a wonderful time and i look forward to seeking out some of the the panel podcasts that will eventually start making their way take lots of pictures everyone who's definitely not listening to this because they're busy with the con but like you know when you eventually listen to this if you haven't shared your pictures yet on social i want to see them so like (laughs) i want to be even more jealous than i already am so have a fabulous time and uh we'll, we'll be thinking of you this weekend uh but we should Get into our weekend TV because of aforementioned time uh, constraints. Again, at the end of the show, Alison Schumacher from, I should plug all of her various things, but from the AV Club, from Consequence of Sound, from uh, RogerEbert.com, joining us to talk Jesus Christ Superstar. But before then, we had to talk through our weekend TV. So we're going to take a break, listen to a little hole, and come back with our week in comedy and reality right after this. Oh, make me over. That was Celebrity Skin by Hole, which was memorably lip-synced on this week's RuPaul's Drag Race. But first up, we're going to talk a little bit about The Last OG, which had its premiere. And then we'll talk about Brooklyn Nine-Nine's fabulous The Box. Uh, Before we go to Atlanta's terrifying Teddy Perkins and then round things up with Drag Race. So first up is The Last OG. And uh, this show... uh, I was intrigued when it was, uh, you know, announced as uh, Tracy Morgan's new show. I was like, okay, that could be interesting, certainly, and certainly to see him come back after his his accident and everything, and and um, see him making new new comedy and and just coming up with having new work that he wants to present to everybody certainly was interesting. But then they announced Tiffany Haddish was on. And I was like, okay, it doesn't matter anything else. I'm watching, um, and then I was just kind of underwhelmed. Um, by this, I wanted to like it more, but I don't even know if Tiffany Haddish is enough to get me to watch this because she's very good, but it's, I just, I don't, I don't buy her and Tracy Morgan in any of their present day scenes together. And that's a real problem for me with this, for, to get, if she's going to be my reason to watch. Um, what did you think of The Last OG? 
it was it was such a comedy pilot that it mm-hmm. it hurt a lot. Um, it's not bad by any stretch of the imagination. I think there's some good jokes, and I like the whole the large degrees of what feels like riffing they're doing when they're doing like just long things of jokes. Um, those work really well for me. But as like an arc, as like a story, I'm not sure I'm particularly compelled. And I'm not sure how much mileage we can keep getting out of Brooklyn's been gentrified. Um, even if it's important to talk about, it's also just like, I need a new joke type of thing. Mm-hmm. And I don't, even as he's getting off the bus, it's just like a number of like jokes of like, oh, we're doing, we're hipster baby type things. And it's just like, oh God. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I also had a problem with some of the, the performance slash direction of the the two gay black guys yeah. who just felt like over the top um making fun of of queer people kind of sure flamboyant yeah. Yeah. they didn't feel like characters um they felt it felt like a punchline yeah and uh that was a little troubling to me and also just the main thing for me is i don't find the tracy morgan character or performance in this first episode particularly interesting yeah. or compelling I'm not, i don't care about that character now as we've said plenty of times comedy pilots are hard yeah and a lot of, of really great shows have not that interesting pilots or downright terrible pilots i think directly of 30 rock and parks and rec and well the american office too but really 30 rock i just watched it went this show is terrible (laughs) and didn't watch again for quite a while because i've read so many glowing reviews of the pilot and was like y'all are wrong and in my defense tina fey agrees if you read her book um but then of course the show became terrific and much more interesting um and so the same thing might happen here i will likely tune back in a few episodes down the line to see if that has happened if they found their footing What, what what about you are you gonna keep watching yeah, I'm probably going to keep watching. Um, I still like this cast a lot mm-hmm. overall, so I think that's enough to keep me in for a few more episodes at least, and then we'll see. It, we're also we're also at least entering a dry period for me, so the degree to which I can maybe uh, scale uh, include something like a half hour comedy is pretty high right now. Okay, yeah, because I watch a bunch of stuff that you don't watch. <laughs> right? Yeah, and like yeah. a bunch of hour longs are premiering next week that I'm like interested in but at the same time it's just like i can work in a 20 minute tbs comedy pretty easily yeah and uh, we should also mention cedric the entertainer of course uh mm-hmm. who's like the number i think now he feels like the number three but he was intended to be the number two because this yeah. is before tiffany haddish blew up um yeah. so uh, yeah we'll see what they can do certainly they have a lot of really talented people working on this show so more mm-hmm. on this when we feel like there's more to say uh we should move on over to brooklyn 99 and the box and we were excited about this episode because it's Three Men and Adina, which, if you guys don't know, that's the very famous, fantastic Andre Brower starring uh, episode of Homicide. Did he get an Emmy for that one? Like, I feel like, because he definitely won an Emmy for playing Pembleton, but I don't know if it was that season. Um, anyways, it's an amazing episode, and this is like the comedy version of that episode, and I think they nailed it. Yeah, no, they they completely and totally nail it. It's just an in really intense funny episode of television that pokes fun at like the entirety of like an interrogation sort of thing while still feeling really true to the overall idea of doing an interrogation episode i.e three men and adina from homicides uh first season 
And so to watch all of that play out and to get um, Sterling, Sterling K. Brown as our alleged criminal is just, A, just the best, smartest bit of casting you can do for that role. Mm-hmm. Um, in part because I think we just kind of forget that he can be very funny sometimes. Mm-hmm. And he's very funny in this episode. But overall, like, the rhythms of it, the whole things of, like, we need tactics, we need to just rhythms the cutting all of it is just like pure good tv interrogation stuff and while it's it's just so good kate it was so good i've watched i watched i've watched it twice this week mm-hmm. yeah I, I look forward to poking my family members to watch it which they like the show just they haven't set the dvr pass for it so I'm, I'm pretty sure they haven't caught this one yet um and it's just so funny and like you said you mentioned the editing the editing is essential in this the timing of everything works so well they, i love that they give several points where, where you think it could be the thing that's gonna tip you know our perp into confessing like the the rant about dentists versus doctors oh god that was so good the uh, that's a trigger for me <laughs> I loved the reference to uh, uh, the 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 ring cycle or Divalcor as um, the Bugs Bunny opera, mm-hmm. which of course he's speaking of the Ride of the Valkyries, which is from the Ring Cycle. Um, but in the choice uh, of including that, that that that's how we get him in the tux. You know, I love that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and and then the the combination of touching on real stuff between Peralta and Holtz and and the strength of their bond after all these seasons and all these years working mm-hmm. together it, it it felt very uh organic and it was very well balanced and, and man- managed to be believable tension but also never undercutting or undermining the strength of their relationship which they've built built really effectively on the show so uh it, it was an excellent episode it lived up to the hype that doesn't always happen um so congratulations brooklyn 99 yeah and I think the other thing to note is, like, the discussion of ethics within the interrogation, including, like, the lying, even though it's legal, it's, like, a huge, not a great thing to do. Like, mm-hmm. it can backfire immensely. But also, and again, like, Brooklyn Nine-Nine's really good at, like, dropping in these kind of things, including the whole issue of addiction of, like, no, this is a serious thing, and I'd feel really bad if, and just, like, there's a genetic component, and all of that, I think, work. it just works really well. It's Brooklyn Nine-Nine firing on all its cylinders. Absolutely. Um, from living up to the hype to, uh, it was last, as we recorded, it was last night, so there wasn't hype for it to live up to, but there should have been... Atlanta's Teddy Perkins like was there a hype that I just missed about this because it was intense no commercials 40 minute episode like this was really good and really creepy yeah I feel like this sort of like it was nice to get a like a Darius perspective on Robin season in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. um of like this is what happens during Robin season is that shit gets really weird and you go to pick up a really cool looking piano and then you get involved in a murder suicide Yep. Um, spoiler alert, I guess. Yeah. But y'all should have, yeah. you know, you should watch, you should watch it. But it's yeah. even if you know what's going to happen, still yeah, it worth doesn't watching. matter. I feel, yeah, no, I don't think that even matters, really. It feels, the entirety of this is just, there's a number of layers that if we had much more time, we could spend pretty much the entire podcast sort of unpacking mm-hmm. and peeling away. But it's, it's a really, it's a really deft episode that deals with race, that deals with, ideas of fatherhood um which both of which are obviously deeply essential to Atlanta on varying levels but it's also just got a very good uh, overall sort of aesthetic vibe 
from series regular director um, and executive producer Hiro Morai, but then also what's probably a really great performance from Donald Glover, if we're we're sure, we're pretty sure. We're that pretty it's sure it's Donald Glover. I as I Teddy Perkins, there's some Troy eyebrows happening. <laughs> yeah, at one point, even though in the credits it just says Teddy Perkins as himself, uh-huh. um, which is delightful. Um, but yeah, it's just it's so good, and I I'm be, I'm a little behind on Atlanta. I haven't haven't watched um uh last week's episode yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was really glad that this episode just felt like a self contained horror story slash really terrible remake of uh what uh, uh of um it's like reverse get out baby yeah it's reverse get out and whatever, whatever happened, happened to baby jane, jane. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah well in, in last week's episode followed uh alfred on a day mm. and then the previous okay, we cool. had the trip out of town uh yeah. with urn um yeah. it, so so like it's it's interesting to see them taking this more episodic approach yeah. this season. And this episode's out of town too, is the other thing. Yeah. Like it's, it's definitely outside like Lana proper anyway. And so just basically the rule of thumb, apparently per Lana is to never leave the perimeter. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I love how the, the one that we did, um, Oh, what do you remember the name of the episode? It was the name of that town. Helen. Helen, yeah. Uh, was super creepy and reminiscent yeah. and inspired by Get Out. This one was too. Um, yeah. Because you get the, instead of the the the, the white characters wrapping themselves in, in black skin, you get the black character who, through various reasons, is has a, you know, gotten, as Darius describes it, I think he's something like one or two too many surgeries. Um, and, and it has this like mask of, which is his face. It's very, also very inspired by Michael Jackson. Um, um, yeah, no, he, I think he describes him as someone who left Sammy Sosa in the dryer. <laughs> which I'm sure the search for Sammy Sosa hat just spiked hugely yeah. while watching. I'm this. sure it did because like, I had kind of forgotten that happened to Sammy Sosa or Sammy Sosa had gone through this process until like three weeks ago yeah so i just went right that's a right thing. yeah that's a thing um if you don't know where some of where this is headed um there's this like creeping sense of dread that mm-hmm. really sneaks up on you don't yeah. watch this while eating anything people i was eating and there's this scene at the beginning that's i like even just <laughs> thinking about it is like making me want to retch a little bit it's just okay. so disgusting. <laughs> I was eating pancakes, delicious homemade oh, no. pancakes with maple oh. syrup, and I just had to stop eating. And like, t- I t- I took off my headphones. I turned away from the screen for a second. I turned back. There was a hand inside a thing. I, it was bad. It was gross and it, very effective. They it was it was absolutely what they were shooting for. Yeah, totally nauseating. Um, so don't eat while you watch this, but do watch it. The direction, the performances, the creeping sense of dread, the the thread of art, um, of of this this false narrative that so many people embrace that art needs pain to drive it or to be pure, to be meaningful. Um, that's, uh-huh. you know, that, that's a big part of where this episode uh, wants to, to leave you, you know, thinking about and, and, and dressing and tackling. And I think it's not a stretch to say we're supposed to be on team Darius with that one. Um, it's just, it's absolutely an amazing episode and, they brought it this week, man. Between Jesus Christ Superstar, which spoiler we liked, and and the box and Teddy Perkins, like very diverse, very 
crazy week of TV, but a week of TV that we, at least that I really enjoyed. Uh, do you have any other thoughts on Atlanta? I mean, I, we have lots more thoughts on this yeah, episode. Yeah, no, I have, but... I have a lot more thoughts, um, but we'll just have to text each other about them. Yes, <laughs> clearly. that's. Good. I'm going to keep thinking about this one for a while. Um, yeah. and, and come the end of the year, standout episodes, this one's going to still be in my brain, whether yeah. I want it to or not, because of that freaking egg. Anyways, on to... No! Bad Noel. He was minding a thing. Bad. Okay. On to RuPaul's Drag Race and tap that app. Uh, I wanted to mention this one. I thought it was a really fun episode. I really enjoyed it um, for several reasons, but I wanted to specifically mention Untucked. Now, you watched Drag Race. Did you also watch Untucked? Yeah. No, like I said, um, VH1 is like very wisely making sure that the recording for untucked is attached to the episode mm-hmm. so i always watch untucked now it's great yeah no me too i was i thought i had to go set a separate thing for it and then i realized it was already recording it um yeah. i loved the conversation that the vixen forced in untucked and brought up and mm-hmm. and like said no we're going to talk about this and then the the other queens contributing to that about how there is a racist narrative that gets for front you know that gets brought forward not infrequently on drag race uh where there are aggressive mean uh angry black queens and then white queens who cry who get emotional and cry and then the black queen is the bad guy and this we've seen these we've seen this tension between black queens and white queens like i was watching a a youtube video of like greatest fights from drag race a lot of them were between a black queen and a white queen and a lot of them the black queen was supposed to be was the bad guy uh sometimes they were right like in this i think they this episode (laughs) had you on the vixen side but i thought it was really interesting and i and i really appreciated the conversation that that the vixen was like no we're gonna make this explicit we're gonna talk about this because you know, you're smart enough to know that this is a thing. You're young enough to know that this is a thing if you're involved in the community, which Aquaria is. And you need to act, just knowing it's a thing isn't enough. You need to actively be working against it or else you're going to just keep contributing to this. And I refuse to be part of that narrative. Yeah, no, it was really, really good. And I, I like that the Vixen kept pushing that, but also in part because it like forces the show to they can't edit around it yeah it's well Um, and it's also too good a tv you know right no it's too good tv but it's also like you can't edit around it Mm -hmm. um or like just drop that thread because it ran throughout so much of the especially that first segment but then like some of the second segment as well um so i i that was sort of like the standout part of like this hour and a half or two hour uh, run for uh, tap that app for me it was just that conversation and it's one of those delightful things that can come out of the fact that untucked is really an essential part of drag race in a way and without that then that conversation gets happens in like the context of like the getting ready for the getting ready for the runway but it's it can that's very easy to get truncated Mm-hmm. in those kind of situations so having it play out here is really really good well and it just shows 
the you know well first of all why they cast the vixen <laughs> i came here to fight you know but mm-hmm. also the that extra space of the hour and a half episode lets us have the mini challenges which i'm still very glad to have back lets yeah. us also have some drama if we need it but also lets us have enough time on the runway so we can see the cha- maxi challenge we can see the runway looks we can actually get critiques the show at least when they have this many contestants at the beginning of the season works much better with this extended yep. time as long as they have the cast to warrant it. And right now they definitely yeah. do. Yeah, absolutely. Is there any other elements that you wanted to discuss? Like, what do you think of the different videos that, that came up with the commercials? Um, Madam Butterface was just kind of blah overall, mm-hmm. which I think everyone sort of acknowledged. Um, the uh, end of days one, I think was probably the strongest one. Um, which again, I think was acknowledged. Um, let's see. Um, how'd you like that Tweety Bird look from Asia? Tweety Bird look, I thought was really, really clever. I didn't like really respond to it. I intellectually, it appealed to me more than like, um, than I just went, oh, that's really cool. Which is how I felt about like the bird Maleficent, um, that was it Cameron? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that Cameron did, which is just was really knocked my socks off. Yeah. Um, but I liked the amount of like thought because I didn't even notice like the hands forming the beak until it was pointed out. I just was like, oh That's wow, awesome. a lot of a lot of work went into this. <laughs> this is very good as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that I I think intellectually I like that one more than necessarily just on a visceral visual level. Well, and Asia was just having so much fun with it, you know. Yeah. When when yeah. she's like, uh, I'm gonna sell this. I'm gonna be smiling. I'm gonna be loving this and that really put it over the top so yeah the other thing i want to mention is that lip sync was awesome i I thought it was was a really terrific like the best lip sync we've had in a while yeah no i'd absolutely agree with that um yeah i do want to say one other thing Mm -hmm. because they keep bringing it up yeah and we didn't really discuss it i really liked the sponge dress (laughs) yeah okay okay And so whenever they reference it in a bad way, I get a little upset because I thought that was a really clever idea and I thought it looked really, really good. And that's all I'm going to say. Team Sponge. Yeah. No, I'm very much Team Sponge because I thought that was really good. I also <laughs> loved the Miss Banji uh, shout yeah. out. I love the the queens loving that in the, in the workroom as well. So it's not just like a fan sensation. They were on board right from the top too. So mm-hmm. any anytime Miss Banji's going to get more love, I'm going to appreciate it on this season. So, uh, well... That being said, what wins your week in comedy and reality? Because, oh. like, we run the gamut here. <laughs> yeah, we were in the gamut. Um, Let's see. Yeah, Bob's Burgers was really good this week, too. Mm-hmm. Um, Shout out to Home Movies. Last, yeah, last week tonight had H. John Benjamin interacting with small children with no script. <laughs> and that was amazing. Um, But I think the box, I don't know. Okay, you pick, pick one, I'll pick between- the other. Okay, I'll pick the box. Please pick Teddy Perkins. I'll do pa- I'll do Teddy Perkins because <laughs> okay. like they're both really really good. They're both like yeah. season standout episodes, so it's not fair yeah. that they both came this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we'll take a break, listen to a little more music, and come back with our week in genre and drama.
That was the Gondor theme. Yes, it didn't air on TV this week, but y'all know what that's referencing. We'll get there. Um, first up, we have uh, we're gonna have just a few thoughts on the Crossing, which had its premiere pilot. Then I'm gonna talk briefly about the Legion premiere, Chapter Nine, and a series of unfortunate events, Season Two, which dropped on Netflix this week. We're gonna talk more about that next week. But a few thoughts: um, the Americans came back, so I'll have a few thoughts on episodes one and two, and then Legends of Tomorrow, guest starring John Noble. Ah, so good. And then Black Lightning, Black Jesus, the Book of Crucifixion. So first up is The Crossing. Um, Your notes here. Time travel, mutants, so much spaghetti at the wall. How did they do with that spaghetti? Anything stick for you? No, nothing stuck. (laughs) Um, It's just so weird. It very much feels like a script that's been sitting in a box since Lost. Mm -hmm. And they just went... Oh, we need a mid-season thing. What about that thing? And get me Steve Zahn as a sheriff. I just, just like, like Steve Zahn so much, but that's not enough reason. Yeah, no. No. Um, so it's just weird because it's like, it's got Sadrine Holt, who I really, really like. And it's got Natalie Martinez, who I really, really like as well. And But they're both just like trapped in this not good show of like, oh, by the way, They've been here all along and just like, oh, God, no. <laughs> so, no, none of this worked. It's just it feels really dated in like a post-lost conspiracy sci-fi Flash type of forward, thing that, yeah. Right, exactly. The six or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And so I was sort of interested in like all of this until they introduced the conspiracy angle, until they introduced the apex mutants that started this war. And it's just like, this isn't interesting at all. I don't know what you're going to say about this and i'm not interested in finding out what you're gonna say plus everyone has just from the promos everyone got haircuts between the pilot and the second episode (laughs) (laughs) and it shows um so i didn't i didn't really like this i can't recommend this it's just it's a lot of it's a lot of bad hooey um for me anyway how did you feel about it i mean it's fine yeah it's all i got it's fine um it it just really highlights how well, how difficult this is, but also how so few shows that are we're attempting to capitalize on the popularity of Lost and um, tap into that that kind of fandom completely missed what made the Lost pilot so amazing. And yes, it had spectacle, and yes, it had mystery, and yes, it had drama, and yes, it had a large and interesting and talented cast. Yeah. It had characters we cared about immediately. Immediately, yes. we were incredibly invested in those people. That is not the case here at all. They've done very, like, maybe I could see you being invested in mom who almost died trying to save her kid. Like, that's about, but like, I don't know any of their names. I don't care about any of their names. I don't know who these people are. So, so if, if you don't, like, that's what makes the lost pilot so amazing is yes, there's a giant spectacle plane crash yes they're in this gorgeous setting yes it's very uh like evocative with the the some of the the mystery and horror imagery that's like you know out the darkness in the woods but it ultimately came down to very distinct characterization from the jump and if you're not going to do that the best you can hope for is like oh maybe it looks kind of fun but if i'm gonna watch right now if i'm gonna watch a looks kind of fun show i'm probably gonna watch timeless uh because yeah. i know more people who watch it and then i can talk about it with them um i so i like this more than you did definitely um and the my affinity for this cast will take me 
a far way into to sticking with it. But right now, for you, the, the show list is getting lighter. For me, it's not. So I don't have space for this one um, mm-hmm. because I'm watching Legion. So yeah, I'm not going to cut out time for The Crossing. Sucker. I can see if people are invested in it and and like enjoy the cast. Want to just watch a kind of one that's just fun and says some genre stuff, but you can kind of shut your brain off. Like, fair enough, I get it, but I, yeah. I don't think I'll be tuning in or making time for this one. Um, I mentioned Legion; it came back for season two, and this has and I, you're not watching, which is the right choice uh, because you would not like this premiere. Um, because it again, it's a lot of style. It's a cast I really enjoy. There's some distinct choices in this first episode that are really interesting and smart, I think. But it's also a lot of okay. But does that amount to anything? Not convinced. It thinks it's telling a interesting and compelling tale about madness. I'm not convinced it's actually doing that. And the Noah Hawley of it all is not, you know, reassuring me the way it would for other people based on, you know, my waning interest in Fargo over the course of the first, second, and third season. So um, very stylish. Really enjoy this cast. Really enjoy some of the performances. Uh, And even just the style and, like, the structure where they'll, like, cut away and, like, they have have John Hamm narrating parts of of this. Um, There's, like, a an animated sequence that's that's really neat that I really enjoyed visually. There's this creepy egg and chick and like, does anyone put their hand in the egg? No one puts a hand in in an egg, but it's just like a comparison between an idea and a delusion. And it starts with an egg and what hatches out of that egg and you know, how, what gets fed and which gets stronger, Um, which works is really neat and works really well. But I'm still not convinced it's actually going to add up to anything. So, so I am, I I enjoy it much more than you do, Noel. I would not recommend that you watch this, but uh, I'm nowhere near the over the moon uh, love that so many other people. I feel like I'm the only one that I know who watches this show, who doesn't like, hasn't really committed to its, uh, who isn't very certain of of the substance, you know? Like I, mm-hmm. at Hannibal, I immediately knew all of the substance. I could see all the artifice and all of the 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 baroque and purple and over the top um, style. But for me, it was immediate, intense and powerful substance. This has that same style in its own way, but I'm not convinced of the substance. Okay, speaking of, I'm going to pivot over to a series of unfortunate events, season two, um, which I thought had uh, more substance in the second season than the first season did, which was kind of not always necessarily good. We're going to talk about this more next week. But for me, uh, the the first season has much more um, distinct threads. It's okay. in each episode. So, like, each episode, these kids are orphaned, and they get a new guardian, and then they – series of wacky adventures. The villain tries to get them. By the end, something has happened to force them to move on to a new place. Um, but the, – the, so, like, they defeat Olaf, but then something happens where they have to leave, and they have to find a new home. Um, and so that – there are eight episodes in the first season. You know, they're all two-part episodes. So there's four stories in the first episode. There's five – in the first season. There's five in the second season. Um, at, in the second season here – Things are getting darker. Things are getting more explicitly political in a way that I think is very compelling. We can talk about next week. Um, but it also is is getting a lot more overbearing and uh, less whimsical 
and it's, okay. it's less it's less safe um okay. to a point where because i watched all of it in the course of like a, like a day and a half i wasn't feeling too well so i just was like kind of laid in bed and was watching it and it was it was oppressive for me mm-hmm. um there's one of the episodes that just felt way too long or the stories i should say felt way too long um and really didn't come together like the other ones did but uh there are also a few elements of the first season that are not present in the second season that really affect the tone and the ratio of despair to hope um mm-hmm. and the presence of kobe smulders and will arnett in the first season as a runner really leavens some of the the darker moments and they are not they that that thread of hope that they represent is not at all in the second season for very clear reasons and and so that it, it just it overbalanced parts of the season into to really oppressive and that's kind of the point i can see what they're going for it's kind of the point but it made it a lot less fun to watch so i will be curious because you're going to check out at least a few of these uh null so we'll, yeah we'll talk about it more next week i'm curious what you're gonna think can i just jump in is that gonna be okay okay yeah no absolutely they do a little like previously on um okay. and the, all the things that i complimented the first season on are less present <laughs> so like there's, okay. there's still whimsy and creativity in all the set design but it's less it's more it's less beautiful it's more drab it's more like there's less moments of wonder and awe mm-hmm. as they get ground down by this the series of unfortunate this process, right. yeah. events and so that same like the same fabulous set design and costume design and, and casting and all of that is still there but it's less fun mm-hmm. which again works thematically but yeah. again speaking of less fun <laughs> the <laughs> americans <laughs> is back for season six and it's fabulous and it's really uh intense and i i am glad that it's the last season even though i will miss the show tremendously we jump three years into the future um philip has retired Elizabeth is still working the job uh, and do, doing the, you know, double life um, and is just being, gra- has been ground down. Like she's barely holding on. Um, she's just so stressed out and she doesn't have her partner. Um, so, so these episodes give a really strong, there's a, there's a, there's a, the end of the first episode of the season introduces a new element for this last season that is very smart is very effective especially for a final season of a show like this um it per it, it allows them to flip the whole dynamic of the show the different you know relationships and everything on their head enough that it makes sense and works but uh gives them a whole new you know range of things to play with that is very uh, interesting and effective um i'm keeping it very vague here i don't know why yeah. you're not going to watch this noel but anyway not like my only question was like what year we're in now i don't remember almost the 90s okay. but not the 90s there, there's a big summit coming up they've jumped three years in the future so okay i don't remember if that took them from 84 to 87 or if that took them from 87 to like 90 but 89 i don't mm-hmm. i don't remember i'm sorry okay it's okay i was just curious like historically speaking wherever your revenge of the nerds or revenge of the nerds 2 came out i didn't see if it was one or two uh, at the okay. movie theater um but the kids are now in college and um they're doing their own things and so that that changes up the dynamic as well so uh miriam shore and scott cohen are in this season i particularly am enjoying miriam shore uh of course as soon as she showed up i was like yes 
Yay. I, whenever she gets cast in something, I enjoy it. Uh, and it's nice to see her in a, such a different role than, you know, younger. So uh, she needs to be on my TV more. Um, and we'll see where everything goes. But it's a really strong start to the season. Very compelling. And I just hope they're not all dead by the end. <laughs> if, like, if Henry can just go have a, a hockey scholarship and somehow end up with a happy life, that would be great. I don't anticipate it, but we'll see. Um Let's talk about happier things. So let's talk about Legends of Tomorrow, guest starring John Noble. And they did, they guest starred John Noble. How amazing was that? I mean, like, this episode was fun, but that was clearly the highlight of this episode. It's funny that you say that, because for me, the highlight of the episode is, wow, Justifying the Good Fight really couldn't figure out what to do with Erica Tazel, but Legends of Tomorrow just went, let's have her fight Grodd. Yeah. It's just like, yes, that is what was missing from culture. (laughs) Um, No, the John Noble cameo is really, really good. Um, His sort of like ridiculous energy of like, why? All of this is ridiculous. Uh, Referring to Lord of the Rings. um, It's very good and it's very delightful. I kind of have, I balked just a little bit at neither um nate or uh ray knowing that was john noble in lord of the rings Mm -hmm. but i'll let it go um (laughs) it was just it was really good it was very funny um and i like that the show is sort of like playing up um dark's devotion to his daughter which was one of the big things about his characterization back in arrow season four so to like see this kind of play out and the ramifications of his plan slash pact coming to the forefront and him finally realizing i think is really compelling and really interesting and neil mcdonough is doing a knockout job but it's difficult to just ignore all the silliness that's in this episode (laughs) um because it's all very good it's all very silly including down to amaya's actress playing her older self with just a little bit of makeup and a wavery voice yeah it's it's just very good yeah it was fun um the cross double cross all of that was less effective for me yes um, yeah it, it like it, the, uh, structurally as an episode i think the last stretch were all much stronger than this one mm-hmm. but when they go to get john noble while filming the lord of the rings to to run lines with ray ray in his little like pa outfit with the hats because he sounds like de- like, like uh um mollus mollus he is Mollus. Who John, John Noble, Noble is voicing. Yeah. Like, yeah. oh, God, it was it was just like the right, the perfect level of camp. It was delightful. Mm-hmm. And yeah, well done. Like, we have to remember this at the end of the season for cameos, because even yeah. though he's been a regular voice wise on this season, I still feel like this counts as a cameo. No, no, it totally does, because he's playing a different he's playing himself. It's, he's playing so, himself. It's that, a different. Yeah, that's totally different. Uh, one other thing. And my friend, um. Uh, someone pointed this out to me, um, and I did not know this. Um, did you know that Nora Dark is played by Brandon Routh's wife in real life? Yes, I found that out recently. And Yeah, and yeah. I just went, oh, all the jokes about Ray being into Nora are just so good now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it certainly makes us a lot more fun. It adds another level to it. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's delightful. Um, yeah. Less delightful, a very, an intense and ultimately very satisfying episode mm-hmm. of black lightning black jesus the book of the book of crucifixion uh of course he's black jesus and he has to sacrifice himself here uh um the 
I, I forgot that they're only doing 13 episodes. So we only have two episodes left of, of season one of Black Lightning. And I think they're doing, they've, they've chosen the right amount of story for 13 episodes. Um, I, I thought this was a really compelling episode. And having the, ha- having there be a season one episode where your hero uh, gets framed for drug dealing uh, by dirty cops and arrested and put through the system, um, I thought was a really... It seems very important to the show to to do this kind of an episode, and I yeah. love that there's a priority. And of course, and I of course I love that they nailed it. I thought they did a terrific job with with the whole episode, but that part of the episode and really, um, you know, giving significant stakes to this, putting a situation where Black Lightning can't solve it, where the problem isn't just. You know, some yes, it is this shady government agency trying to yes, all of that, but that's not really what this is about. And um, I I love that the solution they come up with is not Black Lightning related. It's going to cost Henderson a lot, which we know. There's there's no sense of free lunch with with this ending, though. It's theoretically happy for him because he gets promoted. We know that there's going to be another shoot drop. Um, but I thought with a good balance of the 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 fun of the 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 new like projected uh black lightning running through the streets and all that like i thought there was enough fun with that to balance some of it but they weren't afraid to get uh more intense and real with with this and i really appreciate them doing this episode yeah i did too and it's really it's really deft and it's really thoughtful it calls back to a lot of like some of the more earlier stuff that was felt much more present um, mm-hmm. than kind of faded away as they needed to do a lot of story work um, or became sort of ancillary to that story work. And here it drives the story. And that's really ends up being really, really compelling and really fascinating. And like you said, it's very important to the show to, to depict this. And they depict it really well. Cress Williams is, again, just really phenomenal um, in those scenes uh, as he's being processed and or even also just being arrested it's it's very like that arrest scene is very very good yeah um and so all of this gets played out really well i do agree that there's a larger shoe to drop uh regarding henderson's promotion so much so that i'm just like oh god henderson's gonna be a bad guy please don't let henderson be a bad guy. oh please 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 i think they're gonna kill his um, wife oh oh yeah oh yeah Oh, that's that's bad too. Sorry, yeah, no, uh, I don't think Henderson. Though it did have the feeling of bad guy, right? Like, right, no, it totally had bad guy feeling to me. Yeah, but <laughs> um, which gets to like the other thing about um when we're talking about the show only having like a couple more episodes left this season is just like Tobias is gone, mm-hmm. um, which is probably for the best for right now. Lala isn't even really present um in this episode and then like the asa stuff is like hanging over everything and normally this is at the point where i'm just like what's your climax mm-hmm. or like what was your villain showdown type of thing and i don't really care yeah. right now because the overall dynamics of the pierce family with gamby reintegration into that family um in this episode i don't care because the dynamics of this family are just far more compelling than any sort of season-long villain arc that they keep sort of drifting in and out of a little bit. Um, that it 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 raises up everything else. Um, so when they go from like 
Lala to Lady Eve and Tobias and then Lady Eveish, then Tobias and now to the ASA. And it's, it would feel like that they're just sort of like figuring out which one works and settling on the ASA stuff because that's compelling. That ties into a lot of like their politics that they're more interested in exploring than necessarily um, Lala and Tobias sort of did. And it's just, it's really good. And I like that they're willing to calibrate, but that calibration is also relatively seamless as well is the other thing. And that's why I'm not getting as upset about it is that the shifts and motivations to get these people in and out of the scene uh, or off the stage rather makes sense. Um, so it's been a really strong sort of first season, I think so far. Absolutely. Well, and I love the idea of setting up these different cartoon villains, making them very compelling, like Lady Eve and Tobias, very compelling. And then killing them off because they don't matter because the actual villain is corruption, racism, structural racism, very specifically. And, you know, things like government agencies drugging populations to try to use minority populations, but specifically black people as test subjects. Like that's the real villain (laughs) for this season. And that's amazing. And I love that that's what this comic book show can do air quotes yes. you know um so so yeah there it was a strong episode it was uh compelling and i'm glad that it was at this point in the season too i'm glad they didn't yeah. do this earlier glad that they waited for episode 11 um yeah, yeah it was it absolutely was, it, was, it was a lot of it was, it was a strong episode um what wins your weekend genre drama uh that is a terrific question um it was the crossing wasn't it it was the crossing. It was totally crossing. Uh, I think we'll give it to Legends of Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, guest starring John Noble. It was just so much fun. This show is so much fun. Uh, we should note that in addition to its uh, renewal for season four, which means we get John Constantine as a series regular, is that Ava uh, is has been promoted to a series regular as well. Um, so I'm very excited that Sharp is going to be sticking around um, for next season. That makes me very, very happy. Yes, I'm very invested. I'm so very yeah. happy. Yes. Um, okay. What about you? What won your weekend genre and drama? I want to give a strong shout out to The Terror. The oh, I didn't, I didn't have the mind space to watch it this week. It was really and I'm good. I'm regretting it. Yeah, no, yeah. it was real good. Um, some trivia uh-huh. stuff from Kieran Hines. And, um, yeah, I look forward to seeing what's going to come next. More on that next week, probably. Um, so okay. to avoid talking about that more, I'm just going to give it to Black Lightning. And, yeah. uh, yeah, yeah, strong, strong week in TV. Um, now a few show notes before we go to our dive, our deep dive with Jesus Christ Superstar with friend of the show, Alice Shoemaker. First, uh, you can find a post of this episode over at theteleverse.org where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV. You can email us, theteleverse at gmail.com. You can reach out on Facebook, like the page, start up a conversation there, or, uh, leave a rating or review on iTunes. We have an MP3 unchaptered feed and an M4A chaptered feed, and we're also up in Stitcher. We'd appreciate hearing from you there. There. And of course, we're both on Twitter. I am at the Televerse, and Noel, you are at Noel RK. Thank you for a very good week this week, Kate. Oh yes, it was a it was a fun week of TV. TV delivered, and uh, it did. Yeah. One of the ways it delivered was with Jesus Christ Superstar. So we're going to listen to just a little snippet of Superstar from that uh, live production this past Sunday, and we'll come back with friend of the show, Alison Shoemaker from uh, Consequence of Sound and the AV Club and RogerEbert.com and Debating Doctor Who and TV Party, and she's doing so much stuff, guys. I forgot one. What did I forget? Podlander. Podlander Drunkcast, which I'm about to go see. So, uh, yes, we'll take a break, listen to some music, and be right back after that. 
We're back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsley, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. And we are doing our first deep dive spotlight thing on any of the, the musical, the live musicals that have aired on network TV over the past like five years. Um, so this is going to be fun. But I'm particularly excited because joining us from, oh my goodness, Podlander Drunkland, uh, <laughs> from the, I'm going to get all these TV party consequence of sound and debating uh, Doctor Who, of course, a uh, friend of the show, Allison Shoemaker. Welcome back. I'm so excited to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Well, I came on y- your podcast to talk about this a little bit. Seems only right that you come on on ours to talk about it as well. Um, so w- what's your history with the various like live musicals that have been happening on network TV for the past few years? Were you like excited about this one going into it or were you dubious? How were you feeling before you watched it? Well, I have a very specific, I had a very specific reaction to this one when the casting announcement came on because I could not be a bigger Sarah Bareilles fan. I just love her in a way where, you know, you occasionally get irrationally, emotionally invested in famous people, like somehow you're contributing directly to their success. That's how I feel about Sarah Bareilles. It's a short <laughs> list. She's on it. I just, I've been a fan since before Love Song and then Love Song happened and all of a sudden she was huge and it really felt like I had something to do with it, even though I did not. Um, so I was excited for that reason alone. And that was, I mean, she was announced well before Brandon Victor Dixon was, um, so in that way, I was excited, but I was pretty trepidatious. These have not been great. I, uh, really could not be more the target audience for these, uh, as a lifelong music theater nerd who is willing to forgive all manner of sins. If people just sing like they mean it. Um, but unfortunately, there's been a lot of not singing like they mean it and some <laughs> clumsy staging and some really bad choices and a lot of chaos. And um, yeah, I usually watch these hoping for a couple of great moments, maybe one great performance and um, for it to be passably entertaining and or a total train wreck. I was not expecting it to be actually good. <laughs> Noel, what about you? Um, I'm sort of in kind of the same boat as Allison, um, but I've only watched like a few, I think I've only watched like Sound of Music all the way through of everything, and then I've just dipped in and out for Grease, and I barely got through any of Peter Pan, and I didn't watch any of Hairspray. Um, am I missing one? There's the Christmas Story musical, which I didn't watch. nope. Didn't watch that. Definitely not. Because I don't even like the Christmas story movie. (laughs) I don't either. I think we're the only people on the planet. Yep. Um, There are, uh, there was another like sort of experimental Fox jam. There was Grease Live. Yeah. Um, There was The Wiz, which I. Oh, right. The Wiz. I didn't watch that one either. So. That one, Um, there were parts I liked quite a lot, but a lot of it was also pretty rough. Yeah, a lot of it, I think, boils down for me in that they keep picking shows that I'm not super interested in, <laughs> um, which limits my d- desire to watch them. Um, so while I watched some of Grease and was sort of impressed by a lot of like the choices they made, it was still kind of a really messy production in part because of the weather, um, for at least some of it. But overall, um, I've just never, they just never seem to get it right um, until sort of, spoiler alert? this week so yeah kate what about you well okay lifelong musical theater fan grew up doing it grew up playing in pits i've not played a lot of musical pits um and uh like starting in middle school um 
And I have lots of strong opinions on musical theater, and I love it. And that is why I haven't watched all of these. And the ones I have watched have been mixed bags at at best, usually. Because it's like, what are you doing to to Maria? That is unacceptable. (laughs) Why would you do this to the sound of music? Granted, it's not my favorite musical of all time or anything, but still... like it's not carrie underwood's fault (laughs) and and like uh, like some of the different casting that they would announce and i get the need to cast a name to get the budget for these things because they're substantial they need to have weeks and weeks of rehearsal and build these massive sets and like it's an expensive thing to do i get that they need to to cast names uh at some level to in order to sell this you know, to mu- musical theater, live musical theater to a wide audience. But Allison Williams is not the answer, and neither was Christopher Walken. And spoiler alert, neither was Peter Pan. A big reason that Jesus Christ Superstar worked so well, which I'm going to tip our hand here, is the choice of show. I don't actually care about Jesus Christ Superstar, the show, very much. I'm familiar with some of the music, but and I and and uh, it's one that like, my dad loves this musical and really loves its interpretation of of the gospel and like what it's like its thematic parallels and what it's saying and the discussion it's having about uh, like the about Jesus as is human rather than as divine and all these different you know conversations that the, the show wants to have. For me, I know like two of the songs, um, and that's about it. Um, so I couldn't get too Same. invested or too like worked up about like was it going to be good or was I was honestly no I didn't know if I was going to watch it until we were like hey why don't we talk about it on the podcast so I said it to my DVR and I watched it and I thought it was really really good um and and I think that state that distance and space that I have with the source material it may be a very big yeah. reason that it worked as well for me as it did um there's a lot that it gets right, but because I don't have strong opinions about what the thematic resonance needs to be, some of the significant like musical moments and interpretive moments, um, I could just like sort of enjoy the spectacle, enjoy the voices, enjoy the, the like everything that the show got right and not be as bothered by the things it didn't quite land on. Um, does that come into play for you, Noel? Yeah, absolutely. Like I'm, I know two songs from this show and or concept album, however you want to describe this, um, this whole thing. Um, I know Pilot's uh, trial song and the angry, horny, lashing counting, <laughs> and I know Jesus Christ Superstar. I know Superstar, and that's it. Those are the only two songs from this show that I'm even vaguely familiar with. Um, so I, I went into this very cold um, in terms of knowing the ha- the staging of it or how it's typically been performed. I was not expecting so much glitter, but I thought that was a really good idea. Um, but I, I think that just sort of not knowing made a big difference. Uh, so I agree with you, Kate, in that not being super familiar with this made, made a big difference, even though I needed my person to sort of explain certain things because I got really lost in one of the songs. Um, the Simon uh, Zealots song uh, just didn't make any goddamn sense to me. Um, and I blame the sound mix for that. But for the most part, I just sort of went along with it. But I, I, I really enjoyed it on sort of like a larger spectacle level. And so I thought, yeah, I just thought this was pretty good. Um, yeah. Yeah. Elson, what how how connected are you with the show and did that affect your appreciation? 
Well, I'm not a huge Andrew Lloyd Webber fan, but I all I really wanted to be when I was a kid was like Annie and then Sally Bowles <laughs> and then eventually I'd be Mame and like that was just all I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Um so even the shows I didn't like much, I would just I'd get my hand on a cast recording somehow and just listen to it obsessively. So I know the music from the show that I don't love really well. Uh, granted, it's been a while, but the so some of the um, sort of the less well-known numbers were familiar, but not things that were burned in my brain. But basically anything you'd find on a greatest hits album of Jesus Christ Superstar, anything you can imagine finding in like a mezzo soprano selection, vocal selections book, <laughs> um, all that stuff. Uh, pr- basically anything Jesus, Judas, Jesus, Judas, Mary Magdalene, Herod, Pilate, Caiaphas, all of that stuff I knew really well. Um, and it's not my favorite. So on the one hand, pretty intimate knowledge of the score. On the other hand, I mean, this would be my favorite Andrew Lloyd Webber show, but I'm not a huge fan of his. Um, so I went in hoping that the songs that I don't love would be well handled and I think they were I went in hoping that the songs that I think are great and more importantly that I think are really difficult would be well handled and I think mostly they were um and beyond that I just liked that it felt like theater it really Mm -hmm. feels like like they were some sort of Jedi mind trick where the television director and stage director got together and somehow convinced NBC that a concert version was just what anybody would do in a big open theater if they were asked to stage Jesus Christ Superstar. Like you could, it would be an incredibly expensive production, but if there was a big warehouse in Chicago and I don't know, Steppenwolf got it in their head that they wanted to do like a really gritty Jesus Christ Superstar with lots of glitter, that's what it would look like. It wouldn't look Ah. like... Grease Live, where people are ricocheting from set to set in a golf cart. It wouldn't look like Peter Pan, where it was one set after another. It would look like this. It would look like actors creating space through their performances and clever lighting and a movable set. Um, It was incredibly familiar to me. And that was the thing that really drew me in initially, among other things. It's so funny that you say that because my person was just like, all you really need to do to stage this show is an empty airplane hanger and some bleachers for the people to sit at. That's all you basically need for this. (laughs) And honestly, any good musical, any really good musical, there's a way to do like a stripped down paired version of it. Granted, probably not the best choice for something like, say, Hello, Dolly. But especially musicals with a more contemporary feel, there's Mm -hmm. a way to to do this and, um, and make it great which i think this mostly was well and that's why the choice is so essential of the of which show to do and this show this choice is really really smart and there's a few things i want to make sure we we cover i want to talk about the performances i want to talk about the some of the musical choices i want to talk about the staging the costumes and set design and lighting all those i want to talk about first i want to talk about the the single most important thing that this show gets right that all the other ones have gotten wrong and that is the live audience 
Yes. You can't do musical theater or just theater, really, but definitely not musical theater without an audience. It doesn't work, especially if there's a book and they're supposed to be like comedy. You need an audience to laugh or it doesn't mm-hmm. work um, because that's the pacing and everything is written with an audience in mind. People, if you're trying to pretend that's like invisible fourth wall you know then people wouldn't be acting the way that they're acting in these shows because they wouldn't be they wouldn't have the same di- it'd be completely different if it was written with a you know silent audience or no audience involvement so to have um to to immediately embrace the audience not just a live audience but a mosh pit a like involved a very <laughs> engaged live audience and like, because the Grease Live, they had a live audience, right? But they had two different audiences in different sets that weren't seeing the whole show. So, of course, it didn't work. Like, why would why would you think that that would work? That was very interesting choice. Um, but here, because they pared down the set, uh, because they, you know, trusted their set design, their lighting, their costuming, all their and their performers to be able to convey the change of space without needing to move their cast without needing to move their audience they could just sit and watch the show and engage and and fuel these performers these are hard parts to do well for the most part mary's not as hard as the others but like just vocally like the range for many of these parts and what they ask with this show asks all of the actors to do emotionally is powerful intense stuff you they need the energy of a live audience and a live very engaged audience and i think that's like if there's one lesson i hope other networks learn from this it's that oh i absolutely agree i can't imagine that any network watching this didn't come away thinking we need two things we need to make sure there's an audience and we need to make sure the sound mixer is prepared to deal with the audience because that's the only downside that and like it felt a little coached is maybe not the right word, but definitely like they were encouraged to be vocal. And occasionally yeah. that was a real problem, right? Like Judas died and there was an occasional like, woo. And I was like, that's not, no, no woos right now, guys. This is not woo time. <laughs> um, but for the most part, other than the fact that they seem to struggle with the balance, um, I, I just think it improved everything. The performances felt more electric you could tell that they were really going for it because they felt plugged in and connected to the audience and presumably also connected to the audience at home. But there's an immediacy to performing in front of people. There's this high that comes from it that you can't fake. It, you just, it has to be there. You can't manufacture it. And I think um, that, that of all the great things about this, and I do think there were some great things, including that ending, and I can't wait to talk about that ending. Oh, that having that audience and the resulting immediacy and energy was a huge factor in the success here. No, it absolutely is. Like all the other, like Sound of Music and uh, Hook or Peter Pan or whatever, um, both are really good examples of this failing miserably because it just feels like a very, it feels like a dress rehearsal and a very flat dress rehearsal. Because there's, there's like you said, Allison, there's no energy for them to feed off of. And like you said, Kate, there's no... The book calls for pacing and laughter and audience engagement. And without all of that, it just it's very flat. And you can't, like Allison said, manufacture that. You can't fake your way through it. So having this super engaged 
and Allison's correct, or maybe a little too engaged, um, where the whole live and concert aspect was probably a little bit of a detriment um, to the show's overall sort of um, vibe, but it's still... Everyone was so keyed in and just really responding to how very invested the audience was as well. And feeding off that energy just makes such a huge difference in terms of what the performers are doing, what the audience at the theater is seeing, and what the audience at home is experiencing as well. Um, Because even when there are times when Legend is just very much making too much eye contact with the camera, um, which happens like a couple of times, um, it's just like he's singing to the camera and to the television audience, as opposed to sort of going for the room. But the how keyed in and tapped in everyone was to both types of an audience just made the entire experience of watching this significantly better. And if they, if no other networks sort of go right, an audience that's, that's, that's what was missing. It's just like, duh, that's the entire point of live theater is that it's a live theater and not an empty room with some camera guys. And that it's a live, very engaged audience this is something i run into with classical music all the time as a classical musician it was the pop and rock music of its time everybody wasn't silently sitting there and daintily clapping like they would yell like when they when the marriage of figaro premiered it took like six hours because every aria which that show is amazing it's full of like all-time great arias pretty much throughout it but after every aria they would demand for them to sing it again they had to make a rule that you were only allowed to do encore each repeat each aria one time in the show like the king decreed it or the duke whoever it was um so like that's 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 what you're supposed to have you're supposed to have an audience that's that engaged granted there were problems in the mix and, and, and you, like I was talking with some people, I was like, if I didn't know the story here, I would have no idea what's going on in the first half. Until you get to Gethsemane, I would have no clue what's going on at all. It'd be like the guys with the I badass coats, did. like don't like Jesus. That's all I know so far. Um, and even <laughs> to the point where it really was detrimental to my ability to connect with the larger thematic and like the internal struggle of like a character like Judas. I think that it really hampered the performance because I didn't, couldn't tell what was supposed to be going on. When we get to Superstar at the end, I know that that's supposed to be like mocking and and uh, angry and bitter. But it wasn't. It was very joyful. And because I didn't have anything, like, I intellectually know that that's sort of what's supposed to be or whatever. But I didn't care because I hadn't invested in Judas's turmoil at the beginning because I couldn't hear it. I couldn't understand it. So, yes, there was a real problem with the mix uh, at the beginning. But that, any of the negatives for that, of that for me, were well over overpowered by all the positives. And you don't get the majesty of that that like you could hear a pin drop ending mm-hmm. that gorgeous gorgeous staging if you don't have the raucous noise and like screaming and shouting engagement from the audience earlier on it doesn't have anywhere near as as big of an effect it still would have been gorgeous it still would have been stunning to view but it wouldn't have been this moment of you know this live theater moment of shared awe of silence um powerful powerful silence if we hadn't had a live audience with us it would have just felt much more cinematic and much less theatrical and the part of why it was so amazing to watch 
was that it felt theatrical. God, Kate, that's such a good point. It's, um, it reminds me, there was this great, uh, uh, Alan Sepinwall review of the one day at a time finale season two finale about how essential the live studio audience is to the success of that episode, which I think is hugely successful. Um, one of my favorite half hours of TV of the year, but because people are laughing and really in it when they're laughing, uh, you can feel when they're with the characters emotionally in other ways because they're so quiet. So then when there's that, I won't spoil it for people who haven't seen the show, but when there's this really joyful moment at the end, when there's this sort of explosion of, uh, I, I don't know, relief and happiness at the end of that episode, it's all the more jubilant. And I think um, to a point that I saw you make on Twitter, Kate, and so apologies for stepping on your really excellent point, but part of the other thing that makes that incredible moment of the crucifixion so powerful is after we come back from the ridiculous commercial break, which I know is unavoidable, but good Lord, um, the rejoicing at the curtain call, making the curtain call somehow a part of the show mm. where it's part of the story also couldn't have happened without the audience. It's so from the very beginning when John legend reached out and started touching people's hands in the audience, like, oh, right, okay. So they're a part of they're a part of this mania that Judas is going to be singing about. They're a part of the story that we're telling. And it's such a simple choice, but such an effective one. And the more I think about it, the more excited I get. Yeah. Let's talk about that ending, because just yeah. like, oh my, it's just like is amazing. It was so gorgeous. And it just kept going. And like there are so many different things you could talk about it with. The stagecraft, the the lighting. I know over on TV party, Allison, you and Chris talked about just the just how hard it is to do that, like just technically how difficult it is to execute that shot uh, live and everything. The thing that I'll mention uh, that I love is the physicality of Legend, because because uh, just thinking of how is he up there because he's thumped the whole time, so like he he's got some sort of rigging because like apparently it was real high up there, um, but he doesn't look like it. He looks, he, he's performing, he's slumped and gone the whole way until the, the cross is out of sight. And that was just, I mean, I'm sure you all have, will have your own elements to it that stood out. But I just thought, like, performing all the way until he's out of sight. Well done, John Legend. Yeah, I, I imagine that must have taken a lot of, uh, muscle control, if nothing else, and self-discipline. Um, and also a lot of trust in your team, because good Lord, that would scare the crap out of me. Mm -hmm. um, and like, shout out to this, the end is rightly getting, I think, pretty widely recognized for how beautifully it's filmed, how beautifully it's staged, the incredible scenic design, the remarkable lighting design. Um, but cheers to the people who did that rigging, because that stuff is so hard. I cannot even imagine the complicated system required to lift him up into the air and then pull him backward. Like just a team of incredibly skilled, diligent people working with lots of money and a lot of knowledge of, you know, gravity and physics and stuff. <laughs> no, absolutely. I feel like this is probably the thing that got the most rehearsal because um, it would have had to just to have been pulled off as elegantly and as really seamlessly as it was. I mean, it's just 
it's a just deeply deeply evocative and b it's pure spectacle on both like a theatrical level like you said kate but also on a televisual level um just from the fact that they they hold that shot and it feels very much like something that was really intended for the television audience and also that 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 part of the audience that is facing that wall um but even the folks that are basically center stage get to see the shadow of the cross as it's sort of like the set sort of spreads into a cross basically um so the entire thing just has to work so perfectly and that's one of the fun things about live television is that if it doesn't go right then it's it's sort of a a a glorious misfire but when it goes right it's purely evocative and one of the most really intensely visual moments on television that i can think of in a long time and it's like you said allison the sheer the sheer amount of technicality that goes into not only raising him but pulling him back and pulling him back what feels like so far <laughs> into that into that into that um into that theater is just it's sort of mind-boggling that they did it correctly um and, but it just it works and it's so so beautiful and it was basically worth all the ad breaks to get to that moment, um, unless you watch it on Hulu and there are no ad breaks. But it was it was worth it just for that, and it was just it was so good and so ridiculously powerful um, that I can't I can't think of this version of the show without it. Now it's just the reason for this show to exist. Well, that's how you know. That someone's done a good job with an adaptation, right? Or their mm-hmm. their take on it is if you see an interpretation and then you can't imagine interpreting it any other way, right? And, yeah. And there's several choices like that in this production for me. Granted, I don't like I said I don't know the show that well, but having like the like I saw some people complaining on Twitter about the fact that there are so many tattoos. It's like. You get the point of the story. Like he wasn't hanging out with the clean cut, you know, reputable sorts. Like that was the that's a big part of the Jesus story. Is the was- reputable sorts get the cool jackets, though, guys. They are but, cool jackets. But, They're really cool jackets. Just like the whole setting, I was fascinated by the the way they chose to set it, and like doing this sort of grunge or or, or like even like eighties punk. 80s punk like rock yeah. thing, right? And then Mary Magdalene is in like 60s, 70s hippie wear. And then Judas dies, comes back, and he's like doing early B-boy moves during Superstar. <laughs> what an interesting choice. Like and the, the 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 aesthetic choices for this I thought just were really effective. I mean Simon Zealotus, like his name is Zealot. Of course he has a mohawk. How could you do it any other way? <laughs> yeah, I um, I thought that the, the, there were one or two moments where I was like, okay, that's a lot. The spray painting at the beginning, for example. Oh, was I like, love mm-hmm. that. For me, that was a lot. That was lit. And granted, it was really early and it hadn't, you know, fully purchased my goodwill yet. So it's totally possible that in revisiting it, which I will absolutely be doing, um, I'll be on board with spray painting Jesus across the wall. Um, but for the most part, I think all of the design elements were really well executed and those costumes were just 
killer. That's Paul Tazewell, who's who also designed for Hamilton. Um, he's designed for a bunch of other things. But everything from all those deep V-necks to the drapey cardigans and then how Legend's costume looked when it was covered with the stage blood. Um, obviously, that incredible glittery, like, leather strappy tank that Judas is wearing at the end. Can we talk all- about that for a second? Yes, please. Someone on Twitter remarked that their their mother had a thought about that. And I think their mom was absolutely right. That it's not just bedazzled. It's not just glittery. That's the 30 pieces of silver. Yeah. Yeah. That's what my person said, too. Yeah. And it's, it's like, duh. And again, how could you do it any other way? He, it's Yes, it's glittery straps, but it's also chains of silver. I love it. Yeah. So... So good, so smart, so thoughtful. Um, yeah, just all around, across the board, incredibly well executed. And you can tell that they put a lot of thought into everything, everything. You can tell when they finally sort of decided at that point audiences would be hooked, so the camera slowed down. Mm-hmm. You, there was there were a couple little choices here and there where I was like, what, what is that? But even the one that bugged me the most, which was poor John Legend having to randomly hold on to a bottle of wine for no reason for half of Gethsemane. I would bet money that that's because he was nervous and it would, it was going to be easier for him to hold something with his hand. I, yeah. When I used to direct theater, that was like, if somebody was really nervous about a scene, I would just give them something to hold, which is why that 30 rock episode where Jack Donaghy is walking with the two coffee mugs in his hand is so funny to me. Um, but he put it down after he hit the note, right? And then yeah. from there on out, the entire production felt much more relaxed and confident and self-assured. And it really felt like that was a point, and I was riveted already, but that was a point where everybody finally agreed that they were in great shape and that they could just do the thing and run as hard as they could and see what happened. Okay. Yeah. I've seen a lot of people complaining about the wine and Gethsemane thing, right? I love it. Mm-hmm. I don't understand the the people not liking it because it's like he's like a little drunk because he knows it's coming, and he and it for me it informs the the tone and uh, of Legends take for Gethsemane. So I'm curious what you guys think. But for me, it's like he's he he's drunk the other half of that bottle, and when he starts Gethsemane, because there's different ways you can do it. I my take on what he was doing was like he already knows what the answer is going to be, but he's still going to ask. He still wants to ask, even though he knows the answer is no. And he only has the courage to even voice that because he's halfway into this bottle of wine. What do you guys think? Mm, I mean, I get that. Like, I see I see that, and that is what it seemed to be saying to me. But that didn't really seem to be what he was doing. Yeah. Um, you know, like, he wasn't engaging with it. He was just kind of holding it until he could finally put it down. Um. And I don't think he needed it. The thing is, John, no one is going to suddenly start putting John Legend in like, I, I don't know, like lead roles in Oscar caliber movies, right? No, or maybe they, they will. And then whatever, he could surprise us all. But what matters here isn't um, whether or not he's going to be a great actor every day for the rest of his life. What matters is how well he was cast and how well he was used. And I think he was really well cast and really well used. But every time that it seemed to reach a place where he was going to have to do something um, a little stickier, he yeah. seemed to clam up just a little bit. And that yep. was one of those. Things. And the second that bottle of wine was out of his hand, meaning pretty much the second he had passed the note in capital letters by, um, 
the rest of his performance dropped in for me a lot more. Yeah, I, I kind of agree. I wasn't like too focused like that. That number is where he's sort of singing to like the camera as well a lot more. And that was like really distracting for me since that was something that was being deeply avoided uh, for most of this uh, show. And I, d- I do agree that I think that's a good interpretation, Kate, but I'm sort of with Allison in that it feels much more like a way to sort of keep him from being nervous, um, mainly because I, I really agree with Allison insofar as I think that he's very comfortable with certain elements of this performance, but he's not comfortable whenever Jesus needs to be come off as angry or frustrated in any way, shape, or form. Like, his whole number in the temple, I feel like, should have been a lot angrier, and that doesn't come across. He's really resistant to this idea of Jesus is angry or frustrated, uh, that kind of also comes through a little bit with The Last Supper, where I felt like Jesus was being kind of pouty about the fact that the disciples weren't paying more attention to him. And I feel like that's not the vibe you're supposed to get in that number, based on my very limited exposure to this, and also just going like, why is he just kind of mopey about this, as opposed to kind of frustrated that these guys are going to betray him, deny him, etc., etc.? Um, and it's just sort of a mixed message that I think Allison's point about legend not being super comfortable with the stickier aspects of what I think that this book is wanting from him is sort of not necessarily there, whether that's a degree from interpretation from the show itself or the fact that maybe it's a star image issue as well. Hmm. I, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I see what you guys are saying. For me, it worked a lot better, but the I don't disagree, and certainly <laughs> John Legend is not a great actor um, I, in general. In what I've seen, the things I've seen him in, like he pops up in Underground uh, as Frederick Douglass. Oh, for, that's right. Oh, that yeah. was not great either. No, oh, thanks. he's not a great I actor. Press that, Kate. Thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> but but I do think he does a really good job. Uh, he does way better than I would have expected from him throughout this, and uh, even the stuff that doesn't work as well which i absolutely agree he's not he's, he's john legend he's angry doesn't like it's not his thing uh, he, he's really good at the 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 mellow peaceful stuff that you need from jesus not as good at the angry stuff um but yeah it, it it's one of those things where you need a name you need someone who can sing uh he he doesn't have the right range for the part but I think considering the instrument he has and the range that he does have, he did a really, really good job. I think he did about as good as you could ask him to do, uh, considering he can't really get the high stuff. He doesn't have the power you need for the high stuff. So they went a different way with it, and I think it, it for the overall, really worked. And that's really a testament to uh, – first of all, speaking to I don't expect them to – to magically do everything, be able to do everything perfect and find the person who can sing the part like the way that I think it should be done and also do all do the acting and also be a mega like bajillion, like bajillionaire, super recording artist, very famous internet celebrity and everything else. Like however many ridiculous number of albums he sold, like you're not going to find all of that. So what, you know, I think that they got, enough (laughs) we got enough of that yeah yeah, with this and so that so that it really did work and then they they let some of the other cast carry some of the 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 weight right yeah no absolutely 
Um, before we talk about more of the cast, because we, we need to hit the cast, um, I just want to mention, costuming-wise, you guys already mentioned the Pharisees' coats. Love it. So amazing. But I also need to give a shout-out to Pilot's coat. I just, yes, I was yeah. living... Pilot's whole outfit is just so good. That. The yeah. blouse, the boots, the pants, all of it. All of it. Serving. Like, yeah. just... Uh, Kate and I have already made drag race jokes about Pilot, so I'm gonna refrain now. Um, you, you can hear those on TV party if you want to. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, just in it, like an incredible costume incredibly stylish if i saw somebody walking down the street wearing that i would want to know where they were going and whether or not i could get in because he just looked fabulous yeah well and the other thing that i need to to mention costuming wise is that i i absolutely adore the choice to have them all wearing the scarves and the scarves the the apostles wearing the scarves in happier times, discarding the scarves as Jesus gets taken away and they, and like Peter disavows him and all of that. And then for those scarves to be turned by Judas into the rope uh, that he uses to commit suicide. I thought that was just, I, I don't know if that's what they normally do in the show, but watching Judas knot together the scarves, including, you know, the one that he would have had um, that had been left behind by Jesus's followers who have abandoned him was, I just, great yeah um i thought the whole scarf tying thing really sold um judas's death like it was really great and dixon is really really good when we're talking about people picking up sort of some of the acting slack hi right there um but also um my person was who's really familiar with a lot of stagings of this was like normally the noose just kind of comes down onto stage from like the rafters when they when they do this so this um tying of it was a very different choice for them um to make and i really liked it like i again it kind of goes back to this idea of interpretation and stamps because the idea of just lowering the noose is like kind of symbolic and interesting but by by having Judas make the noose himself in this moment of epiphany um, that this is what he was supposed to do in a lot of ways is just more deeply powerful and more deeply human than the idea of the noose coming from the rafters, coming from the heavens of the theater. This is a much more deeply humanistic sort of idea of doing this in this moment of crisis. And I find that just much more powerful. Well, and when you combine that with the latter, which I thought mm-hmm. was, which I immediately thought was a mistake, and I got really concerned for the actor's safety, and then basically immediately after that, realized that it wasn't, and that that was the choice, I think was yeah. um, incredibly risky for a production like this one, right? Yes. Like, not the kind of thing that I would expect to see on NBC's Easter Sunday version of Jesus Christ Superstar Live <laughs> at a concert, right? Non-literal, jarring, upsetting, but really thoughtful and tasteful. Um, and for people who did just think maybe a ladder fell, they weren't missing anything because we had that beautiful sequence with the scarves. But the image of that ladder falling I, I, is really going to stick with me for a while, I think. Perhaps not as much as um, the, <laughs> the crucifix within a crucifix within a crucifix. I don't know. There's yeah. not a fun one, but it sounded fun. No. Um, I, but it's really going to stick with me for a long time. Before they- we move on to the rest of the cast, I do have one more thing I want to say about John Legend, but... 
Noel, I cut you off. So what were you going to say? What I was going to say about the latter was, is that they still sort of like hedge their bet there a little bit because that shot is really sort of obscured and it's sort of a really quick fade out into the commercial break from that ladder. It's enough, but it's very fast um, compared to the way that they linger on a number of other things. Mm-hmm. One more thing about John Legend, um, because I, the one thing that stuck out to me um, was, and I honestly didn't think about it while I was watching it because I was distracted by how beautiful his voice sounded for most of the show. Um, give or take a note here or there and like some concern about his vocal health, which was not a problem unique to him. Um, I uh, was just so struck by hearing those songs sung so differently. I've heard, I've seen Jesus Christ Superstar a couple of times. Um, most, I think maybe four times, um, three of those four times I'd say I was seeing somebody who was coming from a rock background. I saw Sebastian Bach do it. He toured with the show for years. Um, I saw some other people in smaller, more local productions to it who came from a rock background. And then I saw somebody with a music theater background. I've never seen somebody approach those songs from like an R and B or soul perspective, um, where the tone was so rich, um, and warm and I, I just, I thought it was really effective and I didn't see it coming. Um, and beyond that, I, um, just want to say that I think it's incredibly impressive that he was also one of the producers on this show. Um, I don't know how integral his role was in bringing it to the stage, but I would imagine if you're producing something and also starring in it, then you're probably sort of a champion for the project. Um, who knows that's, I, you know, I haven't actually gone out of my way to research that. And if one of you has a better idea, please correct me. Um, but I think that fewer people, a lot of people know about John Legend, like internet boyfriend and great (laughs) singer and Chrissy Teigen husband. Right. But I think fewer people know about how much work he does as a producer. And part of the reason that he's one of the people that's close to an EGOT now is because of his work as a producer. Um, so I just was really pleased to see this creative person sort of forging a path and making this really great art in a setting that's going to reach so many people. Absolutely. The, like you said, the, the, the warmth and the, the, just the, the color of his voice that, that lo- like I, I come into this on this TV party, he sings the lower stuff and really just like, lingers in, in the warmth of and the dark like just the, i just keep going to timbre but like he in the lower part of the register in this stuff in a way that a lot of the times you don't at least i haven't heard because it, the usually the people doing this part are higher like that's that's where their strength is that's where the like they're more comfortable and so like yeah it just felt so smooth and and welcoming and comfortable um which, you know, isn't necessarily what you want in Gethsemane, but, but I think most of, the, I think you did a good job of that. But, but for the other parts of the show, certainly it is, it's, it works really nicely. And uh, I think the orchestration and the way that they really brought forward the, the full orchestra sound uh, worked well with that. Do you have any thoughts on, on Legend's uh, style, like his, his voice and the style that they, they took musically, Noel? I'll co-sign sort of like both of what you're talking about, um, in part because A, I'm not familiar enough with the show to like compare and contrast here, and B, I'm 
not great at judging sort of good vocal performances i can pinpoint bad ones um but good ones in terms of like their quality and everything i can just kind of go i liked it and that's sort of like where i was with most of his performance um was i liked it and that was sort of like that's basically the strongest opinion i can give you on that since i don't listen to a lot of like music in terms of like vocal performances necessarily um and sort of think as critically in part because i just feel like i don't have the background to evaluate that kind of stuff fair enough uh before we go we're running super long so before we go to the rest of the cast um are there any other elements of like the the lighting the the set design the other elements of the production that you guys want to touch on i mean the the blue with the mary magdalene in the orange with the light coming like some of the the color palette was gorgeous. Yeah, um, I was really struck. I rewatched the last about 20 minutes today, uh, and I was really struck by how much uh, she stuck out when she walked into the frame in the that final shot because you've got all of the disciples and basically the ensemble either standing or on their knees in whites and grays, and then this one figure in this really vivid color. So even without seeing Sarah's face at first, your eye was really drawn there. Um, uh, I loved the glitter table. I don't know. I like, I like, I get what it was supposed to be. I'm not sure it was a, like a mind blowingly thoughtful choice, but I didn't care because I just yep. wanted to like it's, play with the glitter on the glitter table. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just wanted a part of the glitter table. Um, I wish the camera work at the top had been a little bit less frenetic, but honestly, it feels like such a minor complaint when so much of what was happening was great. Yeah, I'll co-sign like the camera freneticness um, was really sort of like a little much at the beginning. And I think that was I don't know how much of that was just like we really want to highlight our ensemble. And like even before we get to the main cast, like this ensemble is like working their ass off so much um uh throughout this entire production that it's really really it's really something particularly special um i i i love that glitter table it felt like a weird bit of camp um before we get to you know the big camp um and so i really appreciate that kind of as a bit of foreshadowing um and one other thing i will say and this my person asked me to include this um, and I sort of agree with the second part much more than the first part, um, is that she asked me to say that the disciples were not nearly drunk enough mm-hmm. and Jesus and Mary were not horny enough for each other as well. Um, and I very much agree with the second half. I don't really have an opinion about the disciples being drunk enough, but I definitely think that Mary and Jesus needed to be much hornier for one another than they come off in this production. Again, not not being as familiar with the show, I can't I can't speak to that. Um, they, you know, they definitely chose to have um, to to mimic the was it the Pieta where you have Mary, it's yeah. Mary, mother of Jesus, with Jesus Jesus head in her lap. They mimicked that shot, and so earlier on with Mary Magdalene, so that to me had her kind of placed her in a different context than maybe that traditionally. So it was more a combination of the both Mary's kind of roles. Uh, but yeah, I definitely, it, it, like, it felt, that felt to me, it felt like a choice as opposed to a miss, like they tried to do it and they just didn't come through. Uh, what do you, what do you think, Alison? Yeah, I am generally not a huge fan 
of the Mary Magdalene stuff in Jesus Christ Superstar. I think that Everything's All Right is a lovely song with a lovely melody that just doesn't do, I love singing it, but it doesn't do a ton for me storytelling wise. And I actively hate, I don't know how to love him, um, which I'm excited to talk about because I did not actively hate it here. Um, but it, it just, um, I, I cannot imagine that Jesus and Mary Magdalene being horny for each other is a bridge that NBC would have been willing to cross on Easter, if any day. Um, because <laughs> oh, for like, sure. I'd be super interested in it. And I think that's absolutely in the score, but it, um, yeah, it just, yeah, I just can't imagine. Too a punk world. for NBC. Yes, totally. I just can't imagine a world where it was happening. So I think instead we got a more confused, more internal Mary Magdalene, which made her story much more interesting for me, even if it made the overall story perhaps less interesting. Well, let's go right into Sarah Bareilles then. How'd you guys uh, like her performance? What did you think? I, Allison, I know you loved it. <laughs> yeah, I should go last. Um, I should go last. <laughs> Noel, how about you? I, yeah, I thought it was fine. Um, like her, none of her songs really sort of grabbed me. Um, and I think her, I think just the the way that the show sort of pitches that character, at least in this version, she's just deeply, deeply passive for a lot of this, and it it doesn't leave like a huge mark. I think like the biggest mark I get from her is just from the costuming and how much that allows her to stand out among literally everyone else. Um, so I think she's, I think Borellis is very good with what she has. I just don't think she has very much to do. Yeah. When you talk about like knowing two songs before this, um, I knew everything's all right. And superstar <laughs> two songs that I knew from this show. Um, I, and I just thought she was very well cast. I thought she did a very good job with the role and she really knew what she wanted to bring to it and executed that, brought that through. Uh, like I felt, I, I felt her, uh, the conflict and her, her confusion clearly throughout it. I, I could really feel what she was contributing. The Brels was contributing, but also what Mary was contributing. Um, and I thought she did a really good job. Like when you, when you're going to cast John Legend, as Jesus casting Sarah Bareilles as Mary is just like, yes, that of course, of course she would do a terrific job. She's got the Broadway chops now that she started in, in the show she wrote, by the way, a world of the music for waitress. Uh, so you know that she can do, do the show and she can do it live and she can, she has the range for it and you know that she can carry it off the acting. So perfect casting. It's very much in her wheelhouse. Yeah, I just um, think that she is terrific. And if I shut off the giant fan part of my brain, which loudly shouts basically anytime anything good happens to her, um, I can say that I think that she of the principals seemed the most relaxed. Yeah. Um, not unenergetic at all, um, but relaxed and comfortable. Um, and sort of centered. Uh, she apparently has the Demi Moore secret skill of timing the single tear rolling down your cheek right when the camera's on you. That's a, like a rare thing, not a skill. I knew that Sarah Bareilles had. Um, but more importantly, she just, she treated both of her songs and especially, I don't know how to love him, which again, I hate like monologues, which is what they are. I knew what was happening. I understood what she was experiencing and the story that she was telling and what it meant to her. And the, I could see the experience of singing it physically. And it, it was 
crystal clear and there isn't a ton there. You're absolutely right. But what was there was articulated for me better than I've ever seen or heard it articulated. Um, and I still think it's kind of a lousy part and I still don't love, I don't know how to love him. That's if, and when I re not, let's, let's not say if, when it's definitely when I revisit, uh, these songs on Spotify or something, um, I will probably skip that one, but I'll, maybe I'll listen every once in a while and I will definitely, um, keep, um, her other songs in my rotation, including, uh, the addition, which I think is from the movie, which I was unfamiliar with. Um, could we start again, please was new to me. Um, or at least I didn't remember it well. And I think maybe that was from the movie version. Anyway, uh, I think that she was really terrific. Brandon Victor Dixon played as Judas. I think we can agree. Like I said, for me, his the character's arc was lost and a lot of his motivation was lost because I couldn't understand the words. But musically and I think performance-wise, he just – like the overall production for me just got better and better as it went along. And I love that one of the few things the audiences seem to understand is – when Brandon Victor Dixon is singing a cappella and performing and acting his butt off, you shut up. <laughs> so I really appreciate the audience <laughs> not stepping on his two big moments like that. Uh, any, any thoughts on our Judas here? Uh, well, I, I think he seemed a little tentative to me at first, which is understandable. I would be terrified. I would be non-functional. So the fact that he or any of them were really functional at all is impressive to me. Um, but after the first couple of minutes, he seemed really dropped in. Um, I thought the big loud numbers were very good. I thought the more intimate numbers were great. Um, just really great. His scene with Caiaphas was great. I mean, the, I don't know how to love him reprise just knocked me off my feet. Uh, I thought the finale was great. Um, he's just like a very fine actor and an incredible vocalist and, um, did a really tremendous job with an incredibly difficult role. I mean, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar is structurally pretty similar, or at least thematically, I guess, pretty similar to Hamilton in that it tells a story frequently from the perspective of the person that we would consider the villain and explores what they're experiencing without ever forgiving them for what they do, but also finding the humanity in them. Um, and he stepped up to that admirably as he has in Hamilton. Um, if you can find clips of him playing Aaron Burr online, I really recommend it. He's great. Um, so yeah, I, uh, was very favorably impressed. Yeah. I'll just co-sign everything else. And just said, it was just, it was powerhouse for me. Like that, that was the reason, um, from like a performance standpoint, I think to tune into this, uh, was Dixon period Allison we were talking and you were texting back and forth after we watched this and I believe we were talking about Norm Lewis I just texted you all caps velvet his voice <laughs> is mm -hmm. velvet it's amazing I just I found out by looking at his Wikipedia page that apparently he's played Sweeney Todd a bunch and I need to find clips of that because it would be really good listeners if you don't know Norm Lewis played Caiaphas any thoughts on Norm Lewis everyone oh Okay, so, I, no, that was a very good sound. Um, so Norm Lewis and I think also Jin Ha, who plays Honest, are just kind of 
very quietly kind of steal the show for me um in with their scenes i think they're both just really really good uh the difference in their vocal range um if i'm using that term correctly is like really on point and i know that's sort of based on like a little bit of research that's what that's supposed to be and i feel like that works really really well and i think norm lewis just brings a great deal of gravitas to that particular part. And um, for those of you who like watch TV, then Norm Lewis is, I think, probably most recognizable as the senator from Scandal. Um, that's like the most like recognizable, I think, TV role that you can kind of point to for him. And it took me like five minutes to figure out that that was him. And then I just went, oh, right, him. He was really good on Scandal and he's very good here, I think. And Jin Ha, I think, is just really, really good as well. Um, like, he does really good singing, I think, but his song speak, I think, is probably some of the best in the entire show. And it's just really fun to sort of feed off both of their kind of energies of him as this sort of minion and, and Lewis as this, like, leader that's sort of manu- manipulating and maneuvering everyone to do exactly what he wants. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. I would also say if um, you fell in love with Norm Lewis's voice, which is, you know, understandable, um, if you can find it, he's in one of the Les Mis anniversary concerts where they'll do like an all-star Les Mis cast sure. as Javert. Um, oh, God. Oh, yep, God. The part of the show. Yep, yeah. find it because he's amazing. <laughs> no, you can you can tell why he's like basically like the first black man to play the Phantom of the Opera in on in New York because damn type Dude of thing. Dude can sing. Dude can sing. Yeah. Um let's talk about Ben Daniels as pilot. Oh, okay. <laughs> I really liked. I thought he did yes. I thought he was terrific and I'm not getting like in most of the reviews I read they were negative on him. And either his acting or his singing or both. And yes, he went hoarse before he was supposed to. <laughs> he like ran yes, out of voice very noticeably, <laughs> which is unfortunate. And he was a little pitchy. Like he didn't shout enough for like he either needed to sing more or sing less in his last thing. Yeah. Um, and, and so it didn't work as well as it should have. But overall, I thought he was really good as Pilot. And as someone tweeted, Pilot is a messy bitch who likes drama, and I am here for it. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I totally agree that, like, his his song speak is really, really good. His energy is just very different from literally everyone else's in the cast. And I really like that about it. Um, And I really like his acting, too. I think his acting is really, really good. But he's sort of like the weak link in the singing aspect for me. Like he goes hoarse right at the worst possible moment of that song. Um, Because that, again, that was the one, that was one of the two songs that I recognized and I was like really waiting for him to hit it. And then his voice just like drops and I'm just like, Oh no, Ben, Father Marcus, no. (laughs) And um, so I, I still really like the performance. Um, Just his singing was just not the best for me. So I'll split that difference. Allison, how did you feel about Ben Daniels? 
Uh, I also loved the acting. I am again reading, repeating a point from TV party, but there was a moment when he was on the floor with John legend kind mm-hmm, of crouching mm-hmm. and his chin was in his hand and he was kind of turning his own face around where he looked just like Vanessa Vanjie Mateo from RuPaul's drag race. <laughs> and it made me <laughs> laugh really hard. Like where he was, it was like, it was like out of the ball scene. He was like serving. He took it to the runway. It was really great. Um, and I loved that. Like I just, I thought it was such a cool, whether he was doing it deliberately or not, it was such a cool effect. It was so presentational and really neat. Um, I am based just because I know my own voice and my own experiences. I am really, I I find it very easy to forgive, uh, singers who run out of steam because they've just been working too hard. Um, it's granted not something you want in, you know, somebody who's doing it eight times a week on Broadway, but they weren't doing it eight times a week to me, frankly, Almost everybody in the show, but Sarah, it felt like their performance at one point or another, you could just tell that they had rehearsed that thing 10 times in the last four days because everybody just wanted to keep going and to do it one more time and to make sure they got it right. And you could tell they cared from their performances and you could tell they cared maybe a little too much from the way they sounded by the time they reached the end. Um, I mean, that's true of Brandon Victor Dixon. It's true of John Legend. It's certainly true of Ben Daniels. Um, it was a little true of Norm Lewis, although that's kind of a different kettle of fish because most of his stuff was so low. Um, it just almost across the board felt to me like everybody was a little bit overly tired. And by the time they reached the end of this marathon, they were running on fumes. Um, so yeah, I've seen that criticism. I, it, he didn't sound to me like a weak singer. He sounded to me like a singer who had completely run out of gas. And that, as a person who has done that to myself personally, on far too many occasions to be considered wise or responsible, um, I, that's something I find it pretty easy to empathize with. Also for me, what was more important was his acting. And yeah. I, like the performance, especially because he's got to carry legend through some of those scenes. Um, and again, no offense to John Legend, he did a great job, but he's not an actor. Like if you had to pick the various things that he does, that is lower on his skill set than his, than his performance, like overall, like persona and his performance ability and his, certainly his singing. Um, so he had to kind of like make up some difference there. And I thought those scenes really worked and he was the reason why. So I'm glad to get some different thoughts and perspectives on that. Uh, any thoughts on Jason Tam or Eric Gronwell who did Peter and, um, uh, and oh my goodness. Simon. Simon. Yes. Yeah, Simon Zelotus. Yeah. yeah. Um, no. Um, yeah. <laughs> apart from like Simon Simon's... needed to enunciate. <laughs> yeah, no. Like, like I said at the top, like Simon's number is just completely lost in my brain from either the bad sound mix or the fact that he went full rock and I didn't make out. He went full like hair metal scream rock and I didn't hear any of it. Um, and Jason Tam just didn't register for me as a performance. I kind of kept forgetting who, I kept forgetting who he was, um, which isn't a great thing. Uh, so both of those just sort of, after their little parts, I just went, okay, um, Allison, how did you feel? Well, to be honest, the biggest takeaway I had from all of this is that at this point, I would say six or seven different people have told me to watch every little step, the documentary about the cast, the casting of the chorus line revival that Jason Tam is featured in, mm-hmm. um, because of his performance in that. And it made me really want to watch that. I don't think Peter is a particularly interesting role in the show. You would think given the subject that he'd have a little more heft, 
Um, and it, I could, it, his stuff isn't stuff I remember well. I could be remembering it badly and maybe the recordings of Jesus Christ Superstar that I force fed myself when I was a kid, Peter was really memorable, um, but I kind of doubt it. Um, I briefly, as I was watching, sort of trolled through trolled through the NBC bios for the the primary performers in the show and um, noticed that the guy who played Simon Zealot is uh, like a Nordic rocker. Um, So it makes sense to me that that's what he did. Um, It wasn't for me. It was fun to watch, but yeah, I couldn't understand a word. Fair enough. Um, Let's talk about the last one that I very clearly was avoiding. Uh, Alice Cooper. I will say this. I rewatched the beginning of his number and I actually liked it quite a bit more the second time through. I think that he did a better job with the, like when he was talking and started the starting and then when the song would kick more in or like, it seemed like maybe he was like looking for cue cards or some of the words. I don't know if that was the fact, but he would started looking a certain way and then the camera would cut to a long shot and then the camera would cut back. And then as soon as he started to look over to this one side, of the frame, they, they cut back to a long shot, like they're trying to hide him, looking for help there a little bit. Um, I thought that uh, it was fine. I wanted it to be way better than fine because of how they promote it and because it's Alice Cooper. I did not know that. I was like, why did they cast him besides obviously mm-hmm. the name? I did not realize that he actually recorded a really popular version of that song like 20 years ago. I was like, oh, well, that makes way more sense. He was in the London cast recording in like the mid nineties for it. So that's, that's why he's in here for this. Um, and he, I think he generally kind of serves as the iconic sort of performance for this. Um, which I feel like that is a big scene chewing scene that didn't get chewed up nearly enough. Um, like I told Kate before we started recording, my entire idea for this, that performance is now Mark Hamill doing Joker voice, singing that song, because it would be amazing. And sort of like what I kind of imagine this sort of like mad clown sort of performance. Um, this is what I was sort of like anticipating once the song got going, but his, his energy just kind of felt kind of flat. And maybe like this goes to Allison's point about people having run out of gas or Cooper also just being kind of old is that the song just is fun, but no one seems to be having any fun um, apart from like some sly winking and that kind of thing. But it's just, there's a lack of like really good physicality or dancing to it that I feel like that really needs to sort of work. Um, but that suit is amazing. I just, it's so good. Um, but yeah, it just, it didn't work for me as much as I wanted it to. Yeah, it was pretty subdued. Um, I, he was the other one that seemed very relaxed. Like there was, it didn't seem lazy. It was just, uh, very sort of matter of fact, kind of coasting on star power, which is fine. Um, I didn't hate it, but I sort of wanted more. And I've been playing the, who would you have instead game in my head for a couple of days now. Um, and I, you know, (laughs) Maybe someday if they do this one again, we'll see Alan Cumming, which is my favorite pick. Right. That's, um, that would have been, that would have been a really good choice for this. Yeah. And I mean, there are other options. Like there are, I, I was thinking today it's, I have no idea what he'd be like as an actor, but it would be kind of fun to see somebody like Billy Joe Armstrong. Um, one of the like nineties punk rockers, maybe, 
um, could be really cool. But at, at the same time, you know, it's, I'm not sure that like huge energy is the way to go with this. I think it's more about grandstanding and like a kind of vaudevillian thing. So it, it seemed to me like a really good take that felt kind of out of place in the thing that we were watching. Yeah. For me, it was that change in, that change in energy and, and, and that's, and I was getting more of like the mockery and the sneer when I watched it the second time. Um, for certain parts of it, if that had been a stronger thread throughout, which you'd think Alice Cooper, uh, naturally, um, then I think it would have worked better for me. But certainly, like, and that costume was awesome, and I, the cane was fun and everything. I think he did about, again, like, I feel like he did about as good as you can expect Alice Cooper to do, no no offense, this, but at his age. I mean, he's up there. This is a not undemanding show. So to, you know, of course he's going to have a very different energy than the the high, like, like, listening, like you've said, Alison, listening to everyone tear their vocal cords apart. Um, and just like the, the ensemble dance giant blisters into their feet. He's going to, it's going to have a different energy than that. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, cosine. Yeah. Well, we've going more than twice as long as I intended. Um, and I, I still feel like we could kind of just sit here talking about things we like. Like, I feel very Chris Farley show about this. Um, and we haven't even touched on many of the things that I would nitpick normally, uh, cause we don't have the time. Uh, I will say, uh, it was very interesting to me being, I'm very, very familiar with Evita. Not at all familiar with this Chris Superstar. It was very interesting to hear certain riffs that then come back. That because this show was written six years before um, Evita, the concept album for Evita came out. Um, certain riffs come back like it, exactly <laughs> in Evita. The da 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 comes back like which you hear a few times throughout this one comes back in that um i don't know that anyone will do it but i would so love to see a version this good of evita like it it could it would be so amazing guys it would just like i don't know that anyone would do it i don't know that uh they would be able to get the right cast for it that in the way that they did for this uh, I don't know if they'd find someone who was a good enough actor who could also sing the insanity that is the that range for Evita or for Che. Um, but I would so love to see that. Do you guys have any thoughts on you know, like what you would like to see of, of of anything executed in this way? Well, I, I think that my my larger question is who wants to take bets that they actually successfully get Bye Bye Birdie Live off the ground for next year? Um, because I don't think it's going to happen. I think that JLo is just stringing them along and it's never going to happen. Um, I can't think of another show, though, that, um, I would want, um, to see necessarily. And I keep thinking about that. Like, I mean, I said at the top that I was just like, they keep doing shows that I'm not particularly interested in. But I also can't think of a show that I go, oh, yeah, I would definitely watch that aside from, like, Les Mis, maybe, but that feels like A, way too soon to do still, and B, that cast is just really, really big, and I don't know that I can think of... I, you would just watch a good live production or an all-star cast of that instead on YouTube and just do the concert album. Um, so I can't think of anything off the top of my head for that, um, but I'm sure Allison has a lot of ideas. 
Um, I do, but I've got yeah, yeah. one that I'm really excited about and maybe I'll, I'll keep it to that. If you, I've been sort of chatting with people about this on Twitter for like three days now. If you have thoughts, you can find me and we can chat cause I have lots of them. Um, but I'm really into the idea of uh, live Sweeney Todd, which would be an incredibly high degree of difficulty and they'd probably have to make cuts. Um, but I think that could be really fun and uh, provocative without being sort of button pushy in a, in a, the way that a lot of the other things people have been mentioning to me are. Um, I think there would be an incredible, lots of opportunities for great casting. Some of those parts, they have to be incredible singers. Some of them, they just have to be incredible musicians. Um, some you can probably get away with finding somewhere in between. And it would just be so fun to do around Halloween. Like, I would love to see a big NBC bloodbath um, because now I just want them all to be on NBC. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but just like a big bloody spectacle of one of the great American musicals um, would be really fun. Uh, Other than that, I think, um, you know, we would have to maybe warm people up to some of the other things I'd really like. Some just content-wise would never fly. I don't want to see a neutered cabaret. I don't want to see a tame spring awakening. I want to see these things as they're written. And if you have to sort of... um, blunt the teeth a little, then fine. But I I don't want anybody for an example of the reason we shouldn't do spring awakening. Just watch rise. Um, Oh, you stepped on my joke. (laughs) Sorry, bro. (laughs) Um, but you know, Sweeney Todd or something else that could, you can tie to a season to get people excited. It's got a big cast and big fun production numbers and a lot of color. And I, I think uh, there are options out there, but that's the one I'm most excited about. I don't think it's a coincidence that we both went to through composed things. We went to operas. Yeah, definitely. Because that's the, I mean, first of all, let's keep Bye Bye Birdie in the tank for that reason, if nothing else. Because I think that's the other big key to the success here is little to no scene work, right? There's not much in the way of dialogue. And you have so many options for musicals that are sung through. Yeah. Uh, this is why I love opera. And anyone who thinks that um, opera is old and stagey and doesn't then doesn't understand the form, I mm-hmm. I think. Um, and it's there, the immediacy of this, like, because Noel, you mentioned by everybody, I was like, oh, God, I can't imagine going from the immediacy of this and the, the constant refueling energy of it to bye bye birdie. No offense, bye bye birdie. It's just a different beast. So yeah, let's let's keep it you know op- let's keep it it's also opera. a very boring show but still there's there's that there's that but um yeah it, uh, just go watch the the randy rainbow kids um about the parkland kids instead just go go watch that and 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 end your your night with a more uh happy thought than the uh, inevitable i feel like it's an inevitable shit show if they actually do everybody live but who knows we shall see if they do it perhaps we'll have another one of these conversations but we have gone way too long so uh thank you allison for being so very generous with your time (laughs) where can listeners find you and your work online uh you can find me on twitter at allison shoe you can find my work at consequenceofsound.net uh where i write about film and tv at the av club where i'm mostly writing about television and at rogerebert.com where i write about film and tv um you can also hear me on TV Party, uh, Consequence Podcast Network show, where Kate is often a guest. Noel, we'll have to get you on there, too. That would be really fun. Um, that's at TV Party COS. 
You can hear me on Debating Doctor Who, again, where Kate often guests. That's at Debating DW. And Podlander Drunkcast, an Outlander podcast, which is exactly what it sounds like, uh, which, again, Kate also guests on. Um, (laughs) So that's at Podlandercast. And that one, uh, just if you don't like swears or dick jokes, it's probably not for you. Stop trying to steal my podcast co-host, Allison. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Noel. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well uh thank you so much ellison and thank you everyone for listening we'll be back next week with another episode of the televerse 